Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan. I'm a member here at Grace, and I'm excited to be continuing this Moments in Matthew series with you today. It is Moments in Matthew, so we're just doing a flyover. Uh, we can't spend a lot of time verse by verse like we typically do. Today we're in Matthew 14, and I just want to give you a quick rundown of what happened in, in this chapter, starting with where we are today. Jesus, of course, uh, gets on a boat to be alone. He arrives on the shore, and there's a multitude with needs. He has compassion on them. The Bible says he heals their sick. The disciples arrive, and it's evening time, and they want to send the crowd away. And Jesus instead uh, multiplies five loaves and two fish and feeds what the Bible says is 5,000 men plus women and children. So we could be at 15,000 people easily. He then dismisses the crowd, goes to be alone again. The disciples get onto a boat. There's a massive storm. Jesus walks on the water. The disciples see him. Peter asks if he could walk on the water. Jesus says, yes, he does. Of course, you know what happens. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. He begins to sink. That's a sermon in itself. Don't have time for today. He begins to sink. Jesus rescues him. They get back on the boat. The storm ceases. The disciples fall down and say, truly, you are the son of God. And then upon landing on a different shore, there's another crowd of people that gathers as they get word that Jesus is there. And the Bible tells us that anyone that even touched his robe was healed that day. There's several major events, major miracles that happen within a period of just a, a couple days. And what we see in Matthew 14, and really, if you look at any of the Gospels, the life of Christ, you see this very clear pattern in Jesus where he spends time alone with God, serves people. Spends time with the Father, goes back to the crowd, heals, teaches, feeds, does miracles, goes back and recharges again by spending time with the Father. Now what I want to focus on today in Matthew 14 in this flyover is the overall context that we find ourselves in in chapter 14. Because something massive took place days, possibly even hours before um, the, the, the passage begins that we read today, and that is that John the Baptist was beheaded. So what we find ourselves in in Matthew 14 is Jesus grieving a loss, because John the Baptist was Jesus' second cousin, and his birth was also miraculous because after 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament, God did not speak until a man named John the Baptist emerges from the wilderness wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, Kind of looked a little bit crazy, but he's preaching about the Messiah is here. The Messiah is coming. His parents were old. His mother was barren. And so his birth was a miracle. And the Bible tells us, I think it's Luke chapter 1, when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was pregnant with him, they visited each other. And when the baby in the womb heard Mary speak, the Bible says he leapt. He was excited about Jesus even before he was born. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, prophesied in the Old Testament that the voice of one coming, preparing the way, he's the one that preached, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is the one that baptized Jesus. He was family. He was a partner in ministry. He was a friend. And now he had been murdered by Herod for preaching the truth. So what we have in Matthew 14 is a number of examples of how we should live in the midst of the most difficult times of life. And so the, the title for the sermon is Serve Through Suffering. Serving Through Suffering. 
And I want us first to consider the example of Jesus. What do we see Jesus do in a time of grief? Did he have some me time? Did he take a break from healing, from preaching, from loving people? No, what we see is Jesus spent time with the Father and served the people. James 1:12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Also in James chapter 5, verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It can be difficult, honestly, to know how to handle struggles and difficulties in life, such as grief, sickness, in a God-honoring way. So I want to be clear as I get into the sermon today, this is not a call for you, for us to stoically bear the problems of this life in solitude and silence. It's not a call to take it on the chin, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, be a man, because in the Bible we find examples of healthy grieving, healthy lamenting. So you might be someone here, you're prone to stoicism as our ancestors were. So I'll give you a little background. I'm 43. That means all of my grandparents were alive during the Great Depression. Both my grandfathers served in World War II, that, which meant both my grandmothers were left behind trying to make things work at home. Scraping by, suffering, rationing, doing the, you know, the ration stamps, barely making it. And what that produced was a really tough, you know, they call it the greatest generation because they were tough and they didn't really complain because they had been through incredible hardship. Now, fast forward, what do you get from that? You get two generations that won't admit to having problems. And so think about church where I grew up when it was time for prayer requests. It was amazing. Must have been a really healthy church. No one had marriage problems. No one was ever anxious. No one ever doubted their faith. No one was ever wandering from the Lord. Everyone was sick. That was okay. Um, <laughs> socially acceptable. Uh, but no one had real problems. Now, where did we get that from? That, that was taught to us from a generation that had been through so much. They just learned, be tough, just take it. This is not a call to solitude in your suffering. So don't take that uh, from what I'm saying. This is also not a call to find your identity in your struggle. This is probably more common in our culture today because if you were raised by someone who was raised by someone that was stoic and, and very guarded with their emotions, maybe your parents overcompensated by basically teaching you that the world revolves around you. They were taught, be quiet, you're not important, just take it, grow up, be an adult, and then maybe you were taught, no, you are the most important thing, you are the center of the universe, and so I'm not making fun of you, I'm just saying what, what that can do is that can cause us to overemphasize and overfocus on our struggles to the point that we can find our identity in them, to the point that we treat suffering and sickness and pain like a blanket, and we wrap ourselves up, and it's almost like a Stockholm Syndrome. We're secure in our suffering because it's who we are, and from that we can get attention and sympathy. Maybe you've been so wrapped up in your own issues that it causes us to not even help others in their struggles. And I want, I'm painting with a broad brush, I get that. But I want to point out these two seemingly opposite responses to struggles 
to say they are the same. Here's why. Whether I'm the stoic one or whether I'm the one that's always about sharing my suffering, poor me, poor me, either way, you know what I've done? I've made it about me. I'm the tough guy, I'm the hero, I can take care of it myself, I'm awesome, poor me, poor me, poor me, I'm awesome, help me. It's the same result. And so we don't want to fall into either one of those opposites. We want to follow the example of Jesus. God's intention for our struggles is for our good and his glory. Look on the screen, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. That's strange. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we need to follow Jesus' example of worshiping, serving, evangelizing, giving, bearing one another's burdens in the midst of suffering because it takes the focus off of me. It puts it on Jesus and it puts it on others. We take the focus off the problem, off of ourselves, and put it where it belongs, back on our Lord Jesus Christ. You know that by serving in the midst of your struggles, serving in the midst of your suffering, serving in the midst of your own sin and your own problems, gives people around you a front row seat to God's redemptive and sanctifying power in your life. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. I'm giving you a front row seat. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. And then Paul says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. How could he say that out of his suffering? He can say, look at my life, look at my sin, and look what Jesus can do. Look what Jesus can do. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus chose suffering as a means to serve us. So what a beautiful example we have from Jesus. He went off alone to spend time with God, and he returned to serve people, even in grief, even in suffering. Number two, consider the example of John the Baptist himself. John had devoted his life to bringing people to Jesus. And in the book of John, chapter one, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, they sent representatives to John to ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? And he made it clear, there's someone so much greater than me 
that I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. Now, it's a very specific cultural reference, reference that in a household that had servants, when they had guests, the lowest of the lowest servant would be the one to wash the feet of the guests. And John the Baptist says, this Messiah is so great, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals to wash his feet. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And John proclaimed daily, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the warning that God would separate the wheat from the chaff and that the wheat would be gathered into, into barns and the chaff would be burned. He's the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's message was make straight the way of the Lord. But when he spoke out against Herod, and that's covered in the beginning of Matthew 14, he was put into prison. And estimates put somewhere between six to 12 months that John was in a filthy dungeon before he was finally executed. And while John the Baptist was a great man, he was still just a man, and even John the Baptist struggled in his faith. During those long hours in a filthy dungeon in darkness, he wondered if following Jesus, he wondered if devoting his life to Christ had been the right thing. And in his time of personal struggle and uncertainty, John the Baptist sent his followers to Jesus. That's in Matthew chapter 11. Look at verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's a strange question seemingly from John the Baptist because he had been preaching, this is the one, this is the one, look no further, the Messiah is here and now here he is in prison going, I, I just don't know. Are you the one? Is, is it worth it? Is my suffering worth it? I love Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In verses 7 through 11 of Matthew 11, we get to hear Jesus talk about how he thinks or who, who John the Baptist really is. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's huge. That's Jesus. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I want us to find comfort in this, that even John the Baptist who was prophesied about in the Old Testament, even John the Baptist had doubts. He carried the weight of being a leader. People followed him. 
He preached boldly, but he didn't have a desire to build a following for himself, even in the darkest times of John's life, even in that filthy, filthy dungeon, he pointed people to Jesus. That, my friends, is what we're supposed to do during suffering. We serve. That's John the Baptist. Number three, consider the disciples. I'm thankful that the Bible is not just a book of success stories because you would just read it and just always feel bad about yourself. Everyone does it right in the Bible. No, uh, what we have are true stories of people often doing things very, very poorly. And the disciples didn't always do things right. They had doubts. Um, keep in mind, they saw the miracles that Jesus had done. Yet over and over, Jesus says, I'm going to do this. And they're like, eh, I don't think so. Are you sure? And he does miracles. They believe. And then he says, I'm, I'm going to die and rise again. Ah, I don't think that, that sounds too hard. So uh, I, I want to be hard on them, but at the same time, I, I realize that, that that's what I do. But I can imagine in Matthew 14, the disciples were feeling the weight of following Jesus. Probably wondering, are we in danger too? Because at the beginning of Matthew 14, when Herod heard about the miracles of Jesus, he said, wait, is this John the Baptist back from the dead? Some Jewish historians say that Jesus and John the Baptist looked a lot alike. They were family, so that's possible. So I can imagine maybe the disciples were wondering, is Herod going to finish the job? Is he coming for us, for the message that Jesus is preaching, for the miracles he's doing? You know, we'd be wise to, to lay low. What do we find Jesus doing? Gather the crowd, ministering to the multitudes. In Matthew 14, look at verses 15 through 17. He's been healing their sick. But the Bible says that when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. In verse 18, Jesus says, bring them here to me. My friends, there will be times that you are just flat, worn out. This is a reality. Your kids are running at a level 11, and Jesus says what? Bring them here to me. Your relationships are going to struggle. What does Jesus say? Bring them here to me. Your resources are insufficient. You're out of money. You're out of time. You have nothing left to give. What do we do? Jesus says, bring them here to me. Now, we know what happened in Matthew 14. Jesus took the not enough, the five loaves, which are probably rolls, honestly, and two small fish, and he multiplied it. He provided above and beyond what was needed. This is a fact, ladies and gentlemen. People still have needs regardless of what I'm going through. When I'm out of money, people are still in need. When I'm out of energy and have no more cares left to give, the world is still spinning and the lost need the gospel. When I am mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally drained and exhausted, guess what? So are other brothers and sisters in our church. So what are we to do? Well, the worldly, humanistic response is the same as when you're in an airplane. You know, there's a safety video at the beginning and they, with their big smiles, show you how to operate a seatbelt, which is hilarious because, you know, you've never been in a motor vehicle, you've never been on a roller coaster, 
You emerge from your cave in a loincloth and find yourself in an airplane. Here's how to fasten a seatbelt. Wow, fascinating. What I'm getting to is the one particular point in the instructional video where they say, if the masks deploy, put yours on first and then help those around you. That makes sense. You need air, you need oxygen to help those around you get their masks on. I would prefer if the bag inflated. I just want to know that something's happening, but it may not inflate, uh, FYI. The thing is, we're not on an airplane. Did you know that there is not a single instance in the Bible where God tells us to take care of ourselves first? Not in the Bible, not a single time. The command is always God first, others second, ourselves last. To thine own self be true is Shakespeare, not Jesus. I know it has the word thine in it, it can be kind of confusing. Not in the Bible, Shakespeare, not Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, some of the scribes went to Jesus trying to trip him up and they asked him, what is the greatest command? And what did Jesus answer? It's on the screen, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first command and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here we go. The me first attitude is anti-gospel because it's built on entitlement. I'm awesome, I'm a king, I'm a queen. I'd love to just preach a sermon on that but I can't justify it in Matthew 14. I'm a king, I'm a queen, I deserve good things. Me first is why we have men stuck in perpetual adolescence. Me first is why we have men spending too much time watching television, scrolling their phones, playing video games, instead of serving their wives and discipling their children. It's entitlement. I work hard, I deserve. I paid my dues, I should now be able to do whatever I want. The kids are annoying me. The wife is nagging me. I'll flee to the man cave. You have to take care of yourself first, am I right? See, it stings to hear because it's true. Me first is why we have so many aspiring wine moms in this country. Oh, these kids are such a burden. My husband is such a child. I sacrifice so much for this family. I deserve to be neck deep in a bottle of Merlot watching reality TV because I'm awesome and you must treat me as such. Me first. These are hard pills to swallow, so drink plenty of water. It's time for a gut check to ask, what is my go-to response in suffering? What's my gut reaction when I suffer? Some of you go straight up fetal position. I'll be over here in the safe space, rocking in the corner, and I'm gonna seek comfort in my habitual sins. Some of you go straight up God complex. I'll fix it. God with a little, little G, of course. I'll fix it. I'll save the day with my intelligence and my skill and my connections and my resources. I'll take care of it. But the correct answer, my friends, is to always obey Jesus' command. And what did he say? He said, bring them here to me. What happened when the disciples turned over what they had to Jesus? Look at verses 20 and 21 of Matthew 14. 
The Bible says they all ate, 15,000 people. They all ate and were satisfied. And they, the, the disciples, took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Imagine these same disciples who said, we don't have enough, each holding more than they had to begin with. The crowd is satisfied. They're full, and we have more left over than we had to start with. And again, we can be hard on the disciples for not believing in something amazing. But they were just acting like we act. They were just thinking like I think. How can I fix the situation? What can I do? Do I have enough? Do I know enough? Can I do enough? It's just too overwhelming. Let's just give up. Instead of, let me bring this to Jesus. When we obey Jesus' words, bring them to me, we're acknowledging that whatever I have is most effective in Jesus' hands. It's more effective when I give it over to him. It means that my brokenness is redeemable. It means my burdens are not for me to carry alone. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When we obey Jesus' words to bring them to me, it shows a belief that Jesus can take my little and make much. It means that my possessions don't belong to me. They are best used to serve God's kingdom. And the disciples realized that what they had was insufficient so what other option is there? Bring them here to me. That's what Jesus says. That's the answer. And what we see is in a time of uncertainty, in a time of fear, we see the disciples serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think about Peter. Consider Peter. As I said earlier, after Jesus fed the multitude, he sent the disciples onto a boat, and then he dismissed the crowd. And a dangerous storm Happened. So when, they, when you see sea in the Bible, Sea of Galilee, they're actually just large lakes there. And the way the mountains are shaped, storms can pop up quickly. And uh, if, if you've ever been there, if, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, there's mountains behind it. And so the wind funnels through the mountains, and it's kind of concentrated over the lake. And so what you have is one moment everything's calm, the next moment there's dangerous waves. And keep in mind, these guys are in a boat made by hand about 2,000 years ago. They were poor fishermen, so they just took whatever wood they can find to cobble together a boat, and now they're in a storm, and they're afraid. And in, in Matthew 14, verses 26 through 29, look at this. But when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Going back to Matthew chapter 8, Jesus actually calms a storm just by speaking. Now we're in chapter 14. And the disciples knew once that they realized it was Jesus, okay, we're safe. He can just say, peace, be still, and, and, and the, the storm will cease. 
Peter knew that he was safe on the boat, but he had this strange request. And the Bible doesn't tell us what Peter was thinking. Was he just overwhelmed by seeing the miracles and constantly feeling like they're in danger? Was he starting to understand the weight that following Jesus was coming at a high cost? He would, he would one day lose his life for preaching Jesus Christ? Was he overwhelmed by everywhere we go, there's just people with needs and needs and needs? We don't know. We don't know what compelled Peter to say, I want to walk on that water. All we know is that he did. Peter wanted something more than safety and security and comfort. Peter wanted to be wherever Jesus was. And so he got out of the boat. We live in a, in a time in history. We are the most prosperous generation with the softest lives in human history. Doesn't mean we don't have problems. We don't have the same kinds of problems that people, I've never been chased by a mastodon, all right? So we have different problems than people had a long time ago. Yet we are a culture that is constantly unsatisfied. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain, and that's what we're missing. So what is the remedy to dissatisfaction in life? What is the remedy to boredom? Buying more? Becoming lazier, making your nest more cushy, or working harder, working longer hours, getting another degree, accomplishing more, getting more accolades. The thing is, it will never be enough. Because if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. That's not in the Bible, but it is fact, fact, fact. Your sin of putting yourself first will never satisfy because you were not created to be first. This is hard teaching. I understand that we are told every day that the greatest purpose in life is to be happy. Jesus would firmly disagree. In Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You might be looking for a crown, but Jesus is telling you to take up the cross. And the answer to your boredom might just be to ask God to send you on an adventure. Have you ever asked Jesus to send you on an adventure? That's the solution to boredom. Thinking bigger and beyond yourself and what you have and what you know. God, will you just send me out? Will you let me walk on the water? We know that Peter sank. Yeah. Maybe the other disciples were kind of mumbling, yeah, he sank. And they were cowered on the boat. <laughs> I don't want to be those guys. Your life and ministry are not on hold because times are dark. You can serve through suffering. You can stand in awe and see God do the impossible in your life. You can finally experience contentment and satisfaction in life. But we have to obey the words that Jesus told his disciples. Bring them here to me, my friends. Going to Jesus should not be plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, V, W, X, Y, or Z. Going to Jesus should be plan A, 
all the time, every time, because Jesus is not our last hope. He's not even our best hope. He's our only hope, friends. So in persecution, grief, strife, fear, need, when the bills come due, when your health is failing, when your faith is fleeting, when your family is crumbling, when your boss is grumbling, when your taxes are due and you don't know what to do, go to Jesus, bring it to him first. In depression, make him your obsession. When you're down, he can turn you around. When you're weak, he is strong. Trust in him and you can't go wrong. Just bring it to Jesus. Why? Because Christ is our all-sufficient, all-powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, the same power, hear this, the same power that heals the sick and raises the dead, the same power that defeats sin, the same power that killed death itself, the very same power that causes Satan and all the forces of hell to tremble, the same power that caused Jesus to walk out of the grave is the very same power that stands ready to walk into your situation. You will have dark times in this life. You will suffer. Don't stop praying. Don't stop giving. Don't stop serving. Don't stop witnessing. Don't stop seeking. Bring it to Jesus. Bring your sin to Jesus. Bring your shame to Jesus. Bring your brokenness. Bring your victories. Bring your doubts. Bring your offering. Bring your sickness. Bring your past, your children, your marriage, everything to Jesus. He says, bring them here to me. Your suffering does not have the power to shut down your life. Bring it to Jesus, and we can serve through suffering. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for always making it about us. Always pointing people to us. Whether it's our solutions or our abilities or whether it's our own suffering that we want attention, we want sympathy, whatever it may be, Lord, help us to turn our eyes and our hearts to you. God, when we suffer, when times are dark, please help us to turn to you first every time. God, that we would not be stalled in our life, that we would not stop ministering, reaching out, and serving, that, God, you would be the strength in our weakness, that you would be the answer when we have nothing left to say, that you would be the solution when all we have are problems. Thank you for your example. You chose suffering because you loved us. You willingly gave up your life, and you died a gruesome and painful death on a cross because it's what I deserved, and you did it for me. Thank you, Lord, for choosing to suffer. Please help us to follow your example, to suffer in your name and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.